0: Welcome everybody, welcome to the Chaburah. Uh, for those here for the first time, uh, the Chaburah is a virtual and physical bet midrash with over 300 students around the world to, dedicated to studying Mikra Halakha, Mahshabah and history through the lens of the classical Sephardi Mesorah. We are also a publishing house with a quarterly journal featuring essays from our teachers and students and we are looking forward to publishing our first two books on Amazon in the next six months, Bezrat Hashem. If you'd like to find out more, please do visit thehaburah.com to join our mailing list. <laughs> and for those listening on YouTube or our podcast, please take a moment to like, subscribe, and leave a comment or review. We move on to tonight. And tonight is where the world of Sepharad meets the world of Ashkenaz, specifically the world of 19th century Ashkenazi Rav, Rabbi Shimson Rafael Hirsch, Rabbi Hirsch was at the forefront of defending Ashkenazi orthodoxy in the face of reforming sects that had developed in Europe, and he was instrumental in shaping what we know today as the great modern orthodoxy. While there are differences between the modern orthodox and classical Sephardi schools of thought, there is a shared approach that leans towards integration, rationality, and coming to know HaKadosh Baruch Hu through his Torah and the world around it. This is why this series is an exciting opportunity for us to learn about a very special rabbi who epitomized much of that. We are honored to have a very special Ashkenazi rabbi in his own right, teaching us tonight. And that is Rabbi Dr. Alan Kimchi. Rabbi Kimchi studied in Israel for 10 years, attending Kol Torah and the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, learning with Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach, Alava Shalom, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, alav HaShalom, and Rav Yoshua Niewitz, alav HaShalom. He later gained a PhD in philosophy and Jewish law from London University. Rabbi Kimchi served for 35 years as the founding rabbi of the Ne Israel community here in London, building it into one of the most successful modern Orthodox communities in Europe. Rabbi Kimchi and his wife, Via, made Aliyah in 2019. I was lucky enough to get to know Rabbi Kimchi when he was here in London, and I was even lucky enough to have him under my hopah Alongside our Rosh Bet Midrash, Rabbi Dweck, uh, those six or seven years ago. I hope my wife's not listening. I think it was six. Uh, Rabbi Kimchi, you are sorely missed here in London. And I, I thank you so much for sharing with us tonight. Uh, Bechavod.
1: Thank you very much, Sina, for the very warm, warm welcome. I'm honored to be the uh, Ashkenazi representative in your Sfardi Beta Midrash. Um, I can say to you, though, that my name, Kimchi, here in Israel, is actually associated with the Sfaradi origins. And indeed, uh, our family goes back to the Radak of David Kimchi in the 13th century, who certainly had strong Sfaradi connections. So I might be able to call myself something of a hybrid uh, between the Ashkenaz and Sfarad traditions. And that gives me maybe uh, an entry card into your uh, Chabura uh, program. Uh, let me say that I've been following uh, your program and I think it's a wonderful innovation using technology to spread uh, I, ideas of, of Torah and Hashkafa and, uh, and Jewish philosophy and authentic, uncompromised uh, Orthodox Judaism in a modern and imaginative way. And a big yeshaka to you, Sinat, Rabbi Dweck, and all the people who are behind uh, this program. Now, we're going to be looking at uh, a particular point in history. Not because we are academic historians, but because studying key figures who were instrumental in shaping the future of Jewish life gives us an insight into our own Jewish life. Uh, The way way Jews live today, the thoughts that we have, and the practices that we have, and the challenges that we have, are very much a product of the way in which uh, Judaism evolved, particularly in the 19th century. The 19th century was a turning point in the history of European Jewry, particularly Ashkenaz Jewry, but it impacted heavily on the Sephardi community as well. And I need to give you a few minutes of context in order to understand uh, Samson Raphael Hirsch. Let me just say, Samson Raphael Hirsch was an Orthodox rabbi who lived from 1808 until 1888 and took a central role in strengthening and directing uh, the future of orthodoxy in Germany but impacted uh, much much wider uh, than Germany in fact impacted over the whole of Western Europe and eventually also into uh, to England to the United States and Canada and South Africa the whole English-speaking world as well but let me explain to you what was unique about this man and what was his real uh, contribution uh, which was nothing nothing short of uh, spectacular um uh, the context here is that the jewish people had been living in europe uh, for many centuries through the middle ages up to say the year 1800 in a very under very miserable conditions they had no civil rights they weren't citizens of countries they couldn't have their own bank accounts they couldn't own property they couldn't employ non-jews they couldn't even often work with non-jews they were limited to a very small a selection of, of, of money-earning activities, you could hardly call them professions. they couldn't go to universities, get diplomas, they couldn't study, they couldn't have access to any of the cultural activities of the, uh, say, the, uh, um, uh, the, the the music and the literature of the countries in which they lived. They were banned from it all, and in fact, if, if they walked into a place where they weren't welcome, they could be beaten up and they had no recourse they couldn't call the police because they had no civil rights at all what happened starting in the year 1800 roughly the, the combined effort uh, effects of what was generally called uh, the enlightenment uh, the the um, uh the, um, clear the, the, mo, the mo, moder- can you hear me Is there a problem with the sound Good. Uh, modernity brought with it based often on the ideas of the French Revolution, the American Revolution and Napoleonic ideas brought a whole new way of understanding how society should be structured. A new atmosphere of tolerance uh, was slowly emerging and slowly the Jewish people, the Jewish communities, uh, I'm focusing now for the time being on Western Europe, uh, were getting civil rights and they were able to leave the ghetto and they were able to integrate themselves into the non-jewish world and it's difficult for you to it's difficult to overstate what an immense uh, uh, pow- immensely powerful experience this was for the entire community uh, for for the first time they could they could uh, own property and live in houses outside of the few streets of the jewish community they could uh, apply to universities they could learn German. They could go to the coffee houses and to the uh, uh, and to the concert halls. They could be involved in studying in universities and become academics and civil servants. And the, the opportunities, commercial and social and intellectual opportunities, were dazzling, absolutely dazzling. And for an Orthodox Jew, um, what this meant was the following. He was being offered the most unbelievable new life, something which his parents and grandparents had never could never even dream of. But the price he had to pay for it was to abandon Torah and mitzvahs. He, ha- he couldn't go into uh, the university and keep Shabbos and Yom. He couldn't go uh, and mix socially with the non-Jewish uh, bankers and businessmen and not eat uh, non-kosher food. He had to somehow... Get rid of all the uh, Torah and Mitzvahs and become and assimilate into the non-Jewish world. And the 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 wave of assimilation in the 19th century in Germany, in France, uh, and in Western Europe in general was not not so much a wave, more of a, a, a tsunami. It was a completely so so much so that there were many cities which which 50 years previously had been centers of genuine Orthodox Torah and mitzvahs, where there was hardly a million left of anybody who had any ideas uh, of, of, of Jewish life. The, the, uh, um, if you wanted to advance yourself uh, uh, socially, the, the the price you had to pay from a Jewish point of view was, was disastrous. And the and the, the challenge that faced all the Orthodox rabbis of Europe at the time was how to deal with modernity. What should be our response to modernity? And this was something which really separated uh, uh, Samson Rafal Hirsch from most of the other uh, uh, Orthodox rabbis of his time, because most of the Orthodox rabbis of his time said, the answer is you have to completely shut down on modernity. Don't go to their universities, don't speak German, stay with Yiddish, don't wear modern clothes, don't go to their coffee houses, don't go to their colleges, and you need to basically a policy of isolationism. So on the one hand, you have this massive, overwhelming drive towards assimilation, and not just assimilation. It was also a a conversion. In other words, there were lots of people who believed famously, there was, for example, a famous... uh, uh, a poet and author in Germany called Heinrich Heiner, who lived in the 19th century, uh, who, who was born Jewish and brought up Jewish, but he, he got himself baptized. And he said publicly that his baptism was his entry permit into the non-Jewish world, into the academic world, into the world of pu- no publisher would publish his works if he was a Jewish writer. He had to be baptized. Benjamin Disraeli had to be baptized, was baptized in to become a member of parliament right Uh, there were lots of people who had to go through baptism famous people who had to go through baptism and 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 the harmony in in the community in general they felt if you wanted to get a job as a civil servant to get government job you had to be baptized and there were communities where 70 80 percent of the communities became baptized not because they changed their beliefs they didn't suddenly start believing in christianity but it was simply an entry permit into this magnificent new world with all its uh, opportunities uh, for wealth and, and knowledge and, and, and culture. Um, so here you have uh, Samson Raphael Hirsch as a, 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 a community leader. And on one side is this complete and utter uh, 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 sea, this flood of assimilation and conversion. On the other side is the attitude of isolationism a good example for example might be a, coli- a, a contemporary of samson Raphael Hirsch. when he was in germany so you had for example in presburg you had rov moshe sefer who was the khatam Sofer. the khatam sefer was the rosh Hashiva and the robber of the town of presburg and his view was that hadash asur min ha that anything new that came out of modernity was by definition was a sign of of a way of life, which which was fatal for people's Jewish life. And that was a perspective that anything that came up out of modernity was by definition to be rejected. It had some very almost strange applications. One of the interesting mega debates that took place in Europe, for example, in the 1830s and 1840s, just to give you a slight uh, uh, instance of this, was when somebody invented a machine for baking matzus. Now, you understand, from Moshe Rabbeinu until 1830, everybody had only eaten hand-baked matzus. Suddenly, in the industrial age of the 1800s, there was a machine to bake square matzos. No one had ever heard of this before. But undoubtedly, most of the post came from a practical point of view, took the view that these machine matzahs were much easier to monitor to make sure they were not chametz and they were made properly and to control the heat and control the time of production and to make sure that the dough didn't rise. It was the kashrut of these matzahs was not in question at all. They were much more, if you like, certainly matzah, not chametz than the hand matzahs, which were rolled by all sorts of people doing the work and hand-making matzahs, and it wasn't so well monitored. So you would have thought it's a magnificent opportunity, and nevertheless, there were a whole group of of rabbanim, Reb uh, from Brody, and the the sons the sons tzanz, of the, the Hasidic who came out and they said, machine matzahs are a sign of a it, it, It's 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 not because it's a comet in terms of halachas matzah and comets, It's comets, because it, it's a it's a, a foot on a slippery slope into modernity. We don't want to allow the modern world to affect the way we are keeping, we are keeping our mitzvahs. We are gonna eat only hand baked matzahs because machine baked matzahs is trafe. It's trafe because it's a simon of a trafe way of life. And this was a very interesting phenomenon across the board, all sorts of, of different activities, there was, for example, and there still is to this day. So to this day, you will find some people who are really insistent on only having hand-baked matters, uh, and, and, and the, without realising what the debate was in earlier times. There was, for example, uh, issues uh, connected with the Reform Movement. So here I'd like to speak for one or two minutes about the Reform Movement, which began in Germany in about 1810 in Hamburg, the, the first reform, uh, what they called a the temple, what we used to call a shul, or we still do call a shul, they didn't want to use the word synagogue. They wanted to use the word temple. I'll explain to you in a minute. To this day, if you go to America, the Reform shuls are all called temples. Why is that? And that's because when the Reform started, the very first thing they did was was they wrote their own siddur. And the first thing they did to the siddur was they deleted out of it all references to Yerushalayim, to any reference to us wanting to go back to Israel and rebuild Judaism in Israel, they deleted it and they said, no, we are proud Germans. We will be Germans here. We're not waiting for Mashiach. We're not looking to go to Israel. We believe that our future is here and we are Germans. It's true we're also Jewish and we pray to God, right? But we are Germans so they they were the most fiercely anti-zionist for the whole of the, eight, quite the whole of the 19th century the reform movement was fiercely anti-zionist it was only in the 20th century when the reform movement realized that the new medinat israel emerging was going to be a secular state that they suddenly started supporting uh, israel but actually the idea of the return to israel was an anathema to them because it undermined what they perceived as their patriotism as Germans, which for them was their main identity. So they, but they wanted as much as possible to, be and that's why, incidentally, they called their synagogue. They called it a temple. What they were saying was, there is no temple in Jerusalem. We're not looking for a temple in Jerusalem. We've got a temple in Hamburg. That's what we've got, and that's what we. That's what our identity is, and that is really. Uh, and the reform also was sweeping through Germany at the most unbelievable rate. And in reality, what they were doing was they were undermining all the Yisodei Hadat. In other words, they weren't, just, they weren't converting to, to Christianity, but they were saying our Judaism is a different Judaism. And the, and, and the crucial philosophical point, which they were challenging, which is still true to this very day, is they were challenging Emunah in a very interesting way. Let me just speak about the word emunah just for one minute. We often speak about somebody who's got emunah, and we tend to think that having emunah means a belief in God, right? Now, that is true, but that's really only a small part of our emunah, because the truth is there are lots of Christians who believe in God, there lot lots of Muslims who believe in God, and there are lots of non-Jews who believe in God. Believing in God is not a hallmark of Am Yisrael. The Jewish people, the hallmark of Am Yisrael is not, is not only to have a belief in God, but to believe in Torah min Hashanah, that the Torah that we've got is divinely, uh, originates, and that we have Torah Shebikhtav and Torah Shebaalpeh, which comes from our Kodesh Baruch Hu, which is not a human creation, but it's a divine creation. And that by, by engaging in mitzvot, we are doing the Ratzon Hashem, we're doing what God wants from us. That concept was completely lost in Reformed Judaism. They said, yes, Judaism, the Bible is a book that was written by wise people, inspired people over a few centuries, and they developed a whole new academic field, the the Wissenschafts, which was what was called the Bible criticism, which is still alive and well in many universities uh, to this very day. If you study Bible studies uh, in Oxford or in Cambridge or in Harvard or wherever it is, you are studying reform interpretations of the Bible which does not assume, or which rejects the idea of the divine authorship of the Torah. And with that is a total loss of our emuna. A person who loses their emuna in Torah Menah Shamayim has completely uh, uh, cut himself off at the source of all the ideas of Torah and Mitzvah. Certainly the Yud Gimel Ikrim, the 13 principles of the Rambam emphasizes. First, the first few are about belief in God. But after that, he says, our has to be connected to Matan Torah, to Torah, uh, to Torah Menah In actual fact, this week's Pasha, in Pasha Shamos, so Moshe Rabbeinu is told by Akadosh Baruch Hu at the smet at the burning bush. He says, I want you to take the Jewish people out of Egypt. So he, so he says, how can I do that? And Rashi explains, what zuchut do they have to be taken out of Egypt miraculously? They have no zuchuyot. They have sunk to a very low spiritual level. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to him, no, when you come, you will see that when you come out of Egypt, that on this very mountain where you're standing here of the burning bush, that is Har Sinai. And on this mountain, they will receive the Torah. In other words, it's a zuchut not of events which have taken place in the past, but the zuchut al-shem ha'Atid. This is a, a, a zuchut, a merit that, that the Jewish people have because what they, what they will do in the future. And that, that is really, that was the key to Yitzhiat Mitzrayim. And in actual fact, uh, the burning bush, the Sneh, both the Ibn Ezra and Kuni say that the name Sinai is based on the word Sne, that the word, the mountain was called Sinai because of the Sneh, because of the bush. In this week's Parsha, where Moshe Rabbeinu is told that the all-important moment will be Nasev and Ishma, the whole of Yitzhak Mitzrayim was only a preparation uh, for Matan And therefore, coming back to our topic for, for this evening, the, the idea of Torah Minashamayim is, is a central concept of the whole of Orthodox Judaism. And it's the red line which divides us, divides Orthodoxy from Reform, Conservative, on the other side of the line. What happened was, just to give you an idea, um, what happened was one of the reform rabbis, a fellow called Ludwig Philippson, decided to write a tra- German translation and commentary of the Chumash um, in the light of reform teachings and Bible criticism. And that, that German, German translated Chumash sold over 300,000 copies in the mid-1800s in Germany. Just to give you an idea of how many Jews were out there looking to have a a reformed Jewish identity. In fact, Sigmund Freud writes that he got a present from his father of a Philipson chumash, by the chumash translated by this Ludwig Philipson, which today no one's ever heard of. What happened was, interestingly, though, that because he wrote this chumash, that spurred Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch to write his chumash right? So in 1870, Samson Raphael Hirsch wrote his Chumash with his commentary, where one of his major goals of his Chumash is, is to show how the Torah Shebikhtav and the Torah Shebalpah are all integrated into one, uh, into one system, and, and show how the beauty of Torah Shebalpah only enhances our belief in the Torah Shebikhtav. And I must be honest with you that this, this uh, uh, Hirsch Chumash which I'm showing you here on the screen is really an absolute uh, masterpiece, a total masterpiece uh, written in about uh, 1870. Uh, interestingly, it was, it was a response to this reform Chumash, but actually it has done us a tremendous favor because of the beautiful ideas which it has, uh, uh, which it has formulated uh, in, in the Chumash. Um the, the philosophy of Roshimsho here was as follows. It's true that modernity contains within it all sorts of dangers which threaten our belief, which threaten our mitzvot, and that when you go to university, you will meet atheists, you'll meet people who live a promiscuous life, you'll meet people who undermine everything precious to Judaism, but it's up to you to stand firm and to be selective and to take the best that modernity has to offer us. It has to offer us lots of benefits, cultural benefits, intellectual benefits, the pursuits of wisdom, the pursuit of culture, all these benefits will enhance our Judaism. We don't need to blank out the modern world. We only need to be selective and to be strong and not be influenced by our environment. And he called this attitude Torah in Derech Eretz. This principle of Torah and Derek Eretz meant that unlike the assimilationists, you didn't have to abandon Judaism in order to be a modern person. And unlike the isolationists, like the Hasem Sofa and the whole Hasidic world, you didn't have to abandon uh, modernity in order to be an Orthodox Jew. You could be a fully uncompromised Orthodox Jew and live fully in in the modern world, that the idea that that is possible, right, was a chidush of the most amazing proportions. For us today, we all take that for granted, right? I was in yeshiva for 10 years, and I was in university for many years, and I combined my university and my yeshiva training, and for me, that was completely normal. Why? Because Samson Raphael Hirsch led the way. He laid down the Pope. Without Samson Raphael Hirsch, every Jew in Europe would have thought, I've got a choice to make. I can either live a shtetl existence, speaking Yiddish and and not reading any of the books and ever becoming involved in any of the professions and be a from Jew and do what God wants, or I can assimilate or convert out and and abandon Judaism. That was an either-or situation. Hirsch came along and he wrote his books and to tell the Jewish world, there is a third option, and the third option is Torah deracheretz. It need, it needs you to be learned. You have to be learned. You have to be aware. You have to be strong. You have to know how to select out of modernity the best elements and combine them in a good way. But that's what God wants from you. Torah deracheretz. The truth is, there was a very interesting book written by the late uh, uh, Norman Lamb called Torah Umada, uh, in which he brings out he brings out lots of different versions of Torah and their Heretz. Because he, Yeshiva University has its slogan of Torah Umada, which is a variation on the theme, and that book is worth reading. I'm not I'm going through it now at the moment, but it's it's worth mentioning that, for example, in his book, he shows that Rav Cook in Rav Cook's writings. He takes Torah and Derek Eretz to a new level. But I won't go into that for the moment. Maybe that's a subject for another another Shia, Rav Cook and Rav Hirsch, and what their what, the, what their influence uh, was. But certainly, I would say to you as follows, that every Orthodox Jew who has gone to university and involves himself in the modern world and man- maintains his total commitment to halakha and to emunah, right, is in fact a Hirschian, is in fact a follower of Samson Raphael hirsch because he provided that path, which was then at that time in in the Eastern Europe, for example, the Hasidic world and the Litvish yeshiva world, they considered it laughable. They considered this option of Hirsch laughable. To to think that you can send young people into the non-Jewish world and expect them not to be influenced by the atheism, the promiscuity, and the general Hefke rut of, of, of the non-Jewish world, and maintain their commitment to Torah Mitzvah, they considered that to be a completely unrealistic and, and unimaginable formula. And therefore, they fought against it tooth and nail. Let me give you one little uh, example of a Dvar Torah, uh, from the writings of Rav Shemshin Al-Hish's uh, Chumash, which is in itself, I think, illustrative of his general uh, uh, philosophy. And that is, in, in, in Boratius uh, chapter 9, the story, of course, is, for, is, is well known, that Noah comes out after the flood, right? And um, he plants a vineyard, and he begets, he gets drunk, and he behaves in an undignified way. His son Canaan makes fun of him, and his two other... His son Ham makes fun of him, and his other two sons, Shem and Yefet, they look after him and they protect his dignity. And the story... And what happens then is that Noah gives a type of a, a blessing and a prophetic statement to each one of his three sons. Don't forget, that's all there was in the world at the time. The world had been destroyed by the flood. There was Noah and his wife. And the three sons and their wives and that's all there was that's all that was left of mankind so these three sons were the uh, progenitors the patriarchs of mankind of the future of mankind so he says he first gets up, and he says a uh, that, that ham his son should be cursed Eved he should be a slave to his to his brothers sounds like a curse not the sort of thing a father would normally do to his son and it sounds a bit racial. It sounds a bit offensive. And then to his son, uh, 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 um, Shem, uh, he gives a bracha, right? And Shem is the one who understands. Shem is, of course, the father of the, the ancestor of, of Klal Yisrael. That's where the word Semites comes from. It's from Shem. And, and uh, he gives him a bracha. And then he gives a bracha to Yefet. And he says, Yaf <laughs> elokim the yishkon shen. that's what he says. what is that all about so very briefly again this is not a textual share i just want to bring this as an illustration of samson rafael hirsch's general philosophy he says yefet and yaft comes from the word yofi it means beauty it means the aesthetic aspects of life it means in a word culture literature music architecture the beautiful aspects of the artistic world, that is Yefet. And in fact, Yefet becomes the ancestor of, of, of Yavan, and Yavan is Hellenism. So Hellenism becomes really the, the, the uh, classic expression of Yaft Elokimly Yefet, that Yefet had this ability to understand uh, the beauty of culture uh, to its highest degree. Coming back for a minute to here, you must understand that in Europe, Germany was considered to be the zenith of culture, the greatest music, the greatest musicians, the greatest art galleries, the greatest architectures, the, the Goethe's and the Schiller's, and the literature, and they were the height of culture. I think now today in the post-Holocaust uh, uh, Europe, uh, it's difficult to maintain uh, that, uh, that, that perspective. Uh, with, with a straight face, but certainly at the time in the 19th century, that's really what was believed. So they believed that that in actual facts of what Hirsch is saying is as follows: the three sons of Noah represent three different types of cultures, where all the nations of the world fall under these categories. Cham, which means heat and passion, really is those people, those nations which who worshipped power and, and, and might and self-gratification, and, and, and the heat of the battle, and the heat of the passions, that is Ham, right? Which in itself will lead a person completely astray. When he was saying, what he meant was that, that in order for him to use his passions correctly, he has to submit himself to the values of Shem. Shem represents the values of Torah and Mitzvot, the values of Avodat Hashem. The, the values of living a life in accordance with the way God wants us to live, that is Shem. So when he says that Ham should be an Eved, he means he should be a means to an end. If he allows himself to be subjugated to, to Shem, then he'll be using all his passions uh, for a correct purpose. And the same is true about Yefet. That, that Yefet should dwell in the tents of Shem means that Shem should provide a tent within which all the benefits of culture, of music, of literature, of science, of art, all those great achievements should come to their full fruition within Shem. What he's doing with these is, he is trying to explain that the Torah wants us not to be isolationists, not to be people who reject culture and reject music and reject science, but people who are able to be yishkan to integrate it into the lives and the values of Klal Yisrael. And this really was uh, one of the great um, messages that Samson Raphael Hirsch uh, was giving. In, in the uh, 1830s, he uh, uh, wrote two books which spelled out in greater detail uh, this philosophy of his. The first one was called The 19 Letters. Some of you might have seen the book, The 19 Letters. It's an amazing thing that even today, you know, nearly 200 years later, it's still a relevant book. It was written to address a, a, a fictional young man who was thinking about abandoning Judaism and assimilating. And he's writing him letters telling him what a privilege it is to be a member of Kali Israel, and that he's wrong if he thinks that he's only got two options, either to assimilate or to live an a, a, uh, un, uncultured life. He could live a life which was fully cultured and at the same time fully orthodox. And this, this book is an amazing book. Incidentally, my late, uh, very good friend, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, wrote a similar book uh, called A Letter in the Scroll. If you haven't read the book A Letter in the Scroll, go out and read it, right? In actual fact, in England, it was sold under a different title. For some reason, I don't know the publishers. In America, it was called The Letter and the Scroll. In England, it was called Radical Then, Radical Now. But it was a little book, which was also letters written to a young man who was considering leaving Judaism. And in it, he explains the great privilege and the great benefits of being part of the Jewish people. It's one of the most powerful one of the most powerful outreach books uh, written really in our generation is Rabbi Sachs's little book called the, uh, A Letter in the Scroll. But it's, be- it's modelled on Samson Raphael Hirsch's book uh, written 200 years earlier um, in the, uh, of, of the 19 letters. He then went on to write the book Horeb." Horeb is also an absolute masterpiece where he goes through the 613 mitzvot the same way as the Seifah Hinoch and the Rambam did. And he gives each mitzvah a rational and philosophical and social meaning and purpose in the most amazing, beautiful way. Again, still readable today, 200 years later, in a very, very beautiful format. Um, he was, he was a, a prolific author. He wrote thousands of articles in the press. And he was, in a sense a a, um, in many ways in his writings he was um, a polemicist in other words he was out there fighting against the reformers fighting against the assimilationists but also fighting against the isolationists he was a man who really spelled out very clearly what he believed in and how he wanted to achieve it and in that sense he was a man of tremendous he was a bit of a uh, sometimes when I read some of his articles, he was a bit of a gladiator. You know, he was, at, he was out there at, at, the, at, the, at the cutting edge of orthodoxy, trying to create a new identity for orthodox Jews, that they didn't need to turn their back on European culture in order to preserve their Yahadut. They could be fully, fully accredited uh, uh, orthodox Jews with Terah and mitzvahs and become even talmid while at the same time uh, absorb from uh, the culture around them uh, the best the best parts of it which would only enhance, uh, enhance their life now one of the things that shimon revol Rafael did in 1851 was he started a new kehillah he started a brand new community because he understood that the going forwards he had to build, not just write books. He had to build an institution, which would be the flagship of his hashkafa, which would be the flagship of his uh, principles of life. And he went to Frankfurt am Main, which was really predominantly, which had had a magnificent history of Talmidei Chachamin and and of uh, uh, um, a scholarship. And, and of Orthodox Judaism for many, many centuries. But now in the mid 19th century, it was predominantly reformed and assimilated. And it was almost completely uh, uh, um, lacking uh, a uh, a core of Orthodox Jews. He built there a small community, which he called the I-R-G, the I-R-G which I think means the Israelish Religionsgesellschaft, or something along those lines. You'll forgive my German, it's not absolutely accurate. But he built this new community, which was going to be a new model community. And in actual fact, after he built it and he put it together, it became, if you like, a gold standard for a new type of what we might call today modern Orthodox community. In other words, the contrast, if you Some of you might have been to In one, Some of the men here might have occasionally been to a Hasidische schtibel. Shuls generally, before Shreffual here built his shul, were somewhat uh, haphazard uh, places where people walked in whenever they wanted to and sat wherever they wanted to and either sang with or didn't sing with and they were dressed anywhere they wanted to. They came in and dothed and they went out and and, and they weren't members of the shul, and it, the, the general rule of, of, of shuls in Europe were along the lines of a shtibel of very uh, um, unstructured uh, tfil. Hirsch took the view that today, in order that Judaism and tfilah is respectable, we need a shul with 100% decorum, 100% Original, right and they and he made a shul where they had bylaws now the truth is if i tell you some of the laws of this shul, you will consider them somewhat um somewhat draconian right uh that, that we we, could, we couldn't live today with the bylaws that he made in his shul. but amazingly in 19th mid 19th century germany this these bylaws made this shul into something magnificent but basically, the, the bylaws said things like, only members of the shul use this shul. If you want to use the shul, you have to be a member. If you're a member, you have your seat with your name in it. You're not allowed to sit anywhere other than the seat which has your name in it. You're not allowed to sit anywhere else. And no one else is allowed to sit on your seat. That is rule number one. Rule number two, a very strict dress code. You've got to, both the men and the women are going to get come." dressed exactly in the most dignified respectable way possible detailed out and if they didn't the gabai would chuck them out of the show right? thirdly the tefillah was the, they had a chazan a professional chazan who had an operatic type of voice and it was meant to be the chazanut was meant to be a spectator sport you were not allowed to sing with singing with was considered to be very common You sat there like you sat in the Royal Philharmonic concert hall, listening to an opera. That's how you sat. That was considered dignified in the 19th century, right? You didn't sing with, right? You sat in your seat. You were dressed perfectly. And of course, God forbid, no one was allowed to talk during that. Right? Absolutely. That was absolutely impossible, right? And everybody had to pay their membership and the decorum, was was the most unbelievable and people loved it people felt gosh this is it judaism has become respectable it's not haphazard it's not hefka it's not a joke it's something respectable it's something important right and 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 the 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 uh the chazanut was at the highest level was at a very good level of music and when the rabbi spoke he spoke in german and he spoke beautifully. He gave, he gave a talk, which was like a half an hour lecture uh, in, in, in the highest Hochdeutsch, in the highest cultured uh, German. And this then became like a gold standard of what a community could look like of people who were all Orthodox, but at the same time, they had absorbed from the German culture the dignity and the dignified way of standing before God. And when he spoke to them, he spoke about all the classic orthodox Torah ideas of what does Tefillah mean, and how, what does it mean, Shibisi Hashem, and what does it mean to stand before Akadosh Baruch and dalvin. Everything was done absolutely Kedas uh, Uqadim. And of course, the Sidur was absolutely untouchable, right? You weren't allowed to adjust or amend anything in the siddur, as opposed to the Reform who had completely massacred uh, the Sidur and changed all sorts of things uh, left, right, and center. So you had a shul there, which then, um, one, one of his uh, colleagues, Samson Raphael Hirsch, wasn't operating completely alone, even though he was the leader of this hashkafa, One of his colleagues was someone called Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer, uh, who was the rabbi of the Berlin uh, Adas Israel, which was a similar type of shul. Which was didn't quite have exactly those bylaws, but certainly was built along those sort of lines. He also had another colleague called Rabdovit Svi Hoffman, who was the head of the Rabbina uh, the, the Rabbina Seminar, where they were training Rabbanim. They were training Rabbanim to be the next generation of Torah in Derach Eretz rabbis in the, in the in the in the Rabbina seminar, Rabbi Hildesheimer, Rab Hoffman and others. Uh, were uh, training many, many Yerobarim. Uh, just as a footnote, I just want to tell you something interesting, that um, I, when I was learning in, in, in Yerushalayim for many years, uh, uh, one of the things I was doing was learning halacha, we're well, learning Pesach halacha, and doing what's called shimush, in other words, sitting in with a posek, listening to him uh, ruling on all the questions that came in, and one of the people I sat with was Rabbi Yeshua Neuvitz, is the author of the Shmirat Shabbat Kilchatah, which became uh, the Shmirah Shabbos, became the classic uh, halachic book of of the laws of Shabbos. And he was he had like hours of the day, a couple of hours in the afternoon. We had an open door, and people came in and asked questions of all different sorts. And I was able uh, to sit there and listen to him giving answers. And it was a most amazing sort of uh, internship. Um, that you, you hear somebody uh, giving answers, and then afterwards he would, exp- if I had questions, he would explain to me why he said what he said. Uh, every now and again, he would ask me, "What do you think? What, what do you think the answer is here?" But what was it, why, why am I mentioning all this? Is because the father of Rav Neuwirth was a Rob of a big community in Berlin, and his father had studied in the Berlin Rabbinus Seminar of Samson Rafael Hirsch of Rav Israel Hildesheim. And he had samicha. He showed me once the samicha that his father got from the Berlin Rabbinic College, right, in the 1800s. And here's the interesting thing, that he gets this samicha, very beautifully worded, a lovely document, and then at the bottom it says, there's a disclaimer at the bottom. It says, we want to state here very clearly, right? We want to state here clearly that if this man, to whom we have just now ordained uh, as a rabbi, if he ever, ever steps foot inside a reform uh, 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 shul, a reform synagogue, this smicha this, uh, is retroactively invalidated. This smicha is only given on the understanding that he will never set foot inside a reform institution. And it was interesting to see that in, in the text, it showed you a little bit of a snapshot of the battles they were fighting at the time. They wanted to create a new uh, uh, generation of Orthodox Rabadim, who would then serve Orthodox communities uh, throughout uh, Europe, who had this principle of Torah and Derek Eretz, who were able to combine the best of, of Orthodoxy uh, together with uh, the best of, of, the, uh, of the local culture. And this is really. Um, What's interesting to me is that this label of Torah and Derech Heretz has become, in my lifetime, unpopular. If you say to people, do you subscribe to Torah and Derech Heretz, they won't jump and say, yes, that's that's a wonderful way of life. They won't do that. I'm not quite sure exactly why that is. It's probably the influence of the yeshiva world. But the truth is that in the yeshiva world itself, a large percentage of people who are yeshiva trained, including myself, Do eventually go to university and do eventually become qualified and do eventually become professionals. And by doing so, they are, maybe without using the label, living a life of Torah and Dericharis. And that was what Shamshar Afu al Hirsh was really um, all about. He was able to fight against the the waves of assimilation. It was not easy for him, Um, but he had to at the same time fight against. Uh, the reform movement and, and um, th- this also created a whole different uh, um, phenomenon um, which was called in Germany the Austritt the Austritt gemeinder meant that the general German German the government of Germany wanted all the Jewish communities to be in one organization right have a general organization of Jewish communities and simpson reform said no i'm not going to be part of any organization where the reform jews are also where the reform communities are also represented there that's not for me as far as i'm concerned they are not practicing the same religion as i am practicing right? and therefore he instituted what was called the austrit austrit meant that he was a uh, separatist he was a separatist in the sense that he wouldn't uh, cooperate in, in any uh, field, social field, uh, governmental field, with the reform movement, because he saw very clearly the reform movement as the greatest danger uh, to, uh, the, the, to to Am Yisrael going forward. The reform movement were, were depriving all the Jews who were subscribing to it, depriving them of their emunah in Torah and Hashemayim, the divine origin of the Torah, was depriving them of a commitment to Eretz Israel, a commitment to Yerushalayim. All the, all, all the most precious beliefs of the Jewish people were being destroyed by the reform movement. And therefore, while at the same time, he was opening the door to science and culture and art and, and professions, and he was encouraging people to combine Torah with a modernity. At the same time, he was fighting this battle against the misrepresentation of Judaism, which the reform movement um, were guilty of. And this was, so you can see that this man was really a a most amazing, uh, uh, amazingly powerful individual who, who really paved the way for the future. And I think Sina mentioned this in his introduction, what we might call today modern orthodoxy of course that term means lots of different things to different people the various different shades and flavors of modern orthodoxy but the idea the underlying idea of modern orthodoxy is that you can live a fully uncompromised orthodox life and still live in modernity that is really the underlying idea and that is the hirschian idea in ashkenaz this was created by hirsch i would like to add since this is a Sfaradi program, and the truth is, in the in the history of Sfaradi uh, 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 orthodoxy, this was not really a new idea, right? As we all know, right, the great Sfaradi Rabbonim in the eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth century were lots of them were scientists, were knowledgeable in many different languages, were, were very well read in non-Jewish philosophies. This, they were able to combine the two in the in the world. in in the Sephardi world. This was not something new. In Ashkenaz, it was unheard of. In Ashkenaz, if you read Rashi on on Chumash or Rashi on the Talmud, Rashi never ever quotes a non-Jewish source. He never ever quotes any other language. He never ever quotes any non-Jew of any sort, right? He's living in a completely uh, hermetically sealed and the Baalei Atosfot as well are living in a hermetically sealed Jewish world and the non-Jewish world around them, as far as they're concerned, is completely uh, a different planet. Right? They were not living an integrated life into the non-Jewish world. Right? But, and that's how Jews lived in Europe until the 19th century. And, th- and then the bombshell hit of the Enlightenment and the Emancipation. And then they had to learn very quickly how to combine orthodoxy with modernity. And that's really the story of Samson Raphael Hirsch, uh, I- I very briefly, in, in a nutshell. Now, I believe I'm giving a second a sheer on this topic uh, at some point in the near future. And I'll be giving you maybe a bit of a deeper insight into some of his Debre Torah. But this was a general a- a sketch, really a snapshot of the man in his times. I'm happy to take a few questions if anybody wants to ask anything. Um, over to you, Sina.
0: Thank you so much, bye. Um, we uh, are actually back next Wednesday. Uh, and you're welcome back every week because that That's was kind of. uh, fantastic, really, really insightful into a giant of Ashkenaz, a giant of Judaism. So, I really, really appreciate that. If we're going to go to a few questions, I must say, uh, in many ways, you saved yourself from an onslaught of Western Sephardim coming to say. Integration is not Hirshian, integration is Western Sephardi, with that last comment that you made, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so you saved a very long Q&A, okay. but, uh, thank you. Um, we have a question here, I think Rob Scher. Um I'll read it out, Rob, uh, hi Rabbi, respectfully to Rabbi Hirsch, uh, what do you think Rabbi Hirsch introduced into his Torah im Derech Eretz ideology, which is no longer c- compatible with the age we live in now?
1: That's not an easy question to answer. Um, I think that the age we live in now is very much connected to Eretz that And that's a major element of our life. Whether we live in Israel or don't live in Israel, that's not the point. The point is we are connected heart and soul to the land of Israel and the Jewish people living in the land of Israel and the future of Israel. And that is a whole dimension of Judaism that he doesn't connect with. So I think that's probably uh, the single largest aspect of the identity of modern Orthodox Jews today, which he which he was which he did not uh, um, connect to, and he did not really uh, wasn't really relevant to him in any way at all.
0: Thank you. If I can quickly ask a question before uh, I sure. guess to the audience, I'll still have a question as the host. Um, I remember speaking with um, Rabbi Professor Mark Shapiro about Rav Shemsham Rafal Hirsch yes. uh, a couple of years back and he was very much of the opinion that the Andalusian experience of uh, the Hachamim of Sephara definitely influenced uh, his approach. Have you seen any references to Safadi di Hachamim in Raf Hirsch's works? Because I've looked and I can't find anything.
1: I think Mark Shapiro is speculating. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm not saying he's wrong, but I think he's speculating. He's saying, look, you know, Shamsha Rav of course, knew uh, that, you know, that, that the great uh, Sephardi Rabbanim had managed to integrate secular knowledge and science of their time into their lives. Um, but he doesn't really quote them or draw on them, to the best of my knowledge. That's not his overt sources of inspiration.
0: No. Thank you. Um, let's go to Giddy in Miami. You can unmute.
2: Hi, hi. thank you so much for this, shiro. Um, so I have a question, I think. Um, so the Rav said that, um, that Rahir was really uh, doing something that was wholly different than anyone else at his time, especially in Ashkenaz. Um, but I, I have, from my understanding, and I'm no particular scholar of the Nitziv. But my understanding is that Natsiv did lots of very similar things, um, if to a much lesser extent, where he was quoting outside sources, non-Jewish sources. Um, um, more, he quotes Mendelssohn a few times, um, and there's actually a big controversy with uh, with uh, certain people hiding certain uh, manuscripts. But it seems to me that it seems to me that there's something going on in that age, in that particular time in history, um, where Rehov, and Natsiv were both seeming, which, which Ashkenaz people in Ashkenaz were more open towards. Uh, outside information. Maybe the Rav can let me know if I'm off, off base here about the period history leading into the um, synthesizing that Rav Hirsch did in the mid did as well.
1: Okay, I'm pleased you mentioned the Metziv, and the Nitzv is really a subject for a whole talk on himself, um, a very, very fascinating individual, and you're right if you say that the Nitzv did open his door occasionally to people who had a broader knowledge but there's no question at all that the nativ uh, lived in a much more uh, um, isolationist environment and that the Velozhani Yeshiva certainly did not advocate or recommend or tolerate any other secular studies. So the right. nativ, the nativ uh, who was the head of the Velozhani Yeshiva, uh, was certainly part of the uh, Litvish uh, Yeshiva uh, tradition of which I'm also part of that tradition, so I know it quite well. So I would say to you that the general theme of the literary yeshivas towards modernity was absolutely not an a synthesis attitude. They spoke about themselves as a tevat Noach. They viewed themselves as a as Noah's Ark, where everybody around was drowning. If you wanted to not drown in the world of modernity and atheism and promiscuity and reform and assimilation, then you've got to come into the yeshiva. The yeshiva is the Noah's Ark. So they were involved in really providing a refuge for people who, who would otherwise be uh, completely
2: but lost. Is, is it possible that, that a lot of that has to do with the, where they were, whereas Rav Hirsch was in Germany, which was really the center of the Enlightenment? Whereas the Nitzv was far the way the Nitzv had to deal with other people around him. I've heard some scholars um, who, have, who have put forth the uh, hypothesis that the Nitzv was more radical than we like to give him uh, credit for. Okay, and there, there the factor of, Chaim of interesting was there.
1: scholarship. You're, you're absolutely right. right. There is and the fact there. that
2: we, we now look at them through the, the eyesight of Brisk, and it, people like to think of Brisk and Volosha as one thing because of the influence of Chaim but also the Natsiv was farther out. So maybe there's something in that time period, specifically in that okay. mid-1800s. What, what,
1: what you're saying, there is some truth to what you're saying, but I think that uh, you can't compare at all the the extent of Hirsch's um, uh, uh, view of synthesis of term der Heret, uh, with uh, uh, the Natsiv, who was really a literature Rosh Hashiva, who was indeed more open, let's put it that way, he was more a uh, uh, somebody here made a comment to the effect that, in fact, Hirsch, in many ways, was very critical of the Rambam. Uh, maybe that's a topic I will look at a little bit in the next year. In my next year, I'll mention that, uh, because he did feel that the Ramb- Rambam overdid it. The Rambam o- allowed the non-Jewish sources of his ideas to creep too deeply into his Torah thinking. Uh, okay, so that's 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 a critical view of the Rambam, where which which is worth thinking about. So Rav was certainly aware of the great Rabonim, um, but he was he was plotting a different course completely. Thank you're you
0: wrong. very much. Thank you. Question from Gil. You can unmute.
3: Hi, Rabbi, thank you very much for the uh, inspiration and very informative shir. Um it seems that um, the approach that a lot of the Rabbanim took, both on the Sephardic side and on the Ashkenazic side, were heavily, if not almost entirely, influenced by their surroundings. Um, for example, we had a sure last week about how um, the Sephardic approach to um, dealing with uh, community issues is to view the community as more of a family as opposed to like a business and to, to be extremely inclusive, but that wouldn't necessarily have worked in a place that was very heavily influenced by the enlightenment. Cause that would have maybe been very damaging to the community. So my question is basically are the, are, are these approaches uh, from your perspective entirely based on outside factors or are there like inherent, um, religious, I guess, or Torah-based themes outside of time that, um, let's say, Rav Hirsch or even on the, on the Spartic side are being used?
1: Okay, um, that's a complex question. It's a good question. It's a, good, it's a complex question. Of course, uh, every, everybody lives within a certain social context, right? But I would say to you, if you read Hirsch, he was firmly in the classical Orthodox tradition that the ideas that he was teaching were totally uh, pure Torah ideas. It is true that he had to apply them in a different circumstances. In other words, the art of rabbinic life, I can tell you this from experience, is to know uh, how to take the timeless principles of, of, of Torah and halacha and apply them in modern circumstances. In other words, modernity gives us today a different society than existed 50 years ago. And 50 years ago, it was different than 100 years ago. And the society Hirsch had to deal with, he, he knew his society. And he knew that in order uh, to really make Torah intelligible to his society, he needed to frame it in a particular way. But I don't think it's true to say that he was influenced. I don't think his the Torah ideas that he was teaching were the timeless Torah concepts, uh, which were, t- were taught also in the Hasidic world and in the Lithuanian world and in the Sephardi world. Only he had a particular battle to fight and he had a particular society that he needed to deal with. And like today, for example, the, the halachic authorities today in Israel have to deal with a society that is largely irreligious. How does one practice Orthodox Judaism in a context of an irreligious society. Um, How does that work exactly? I was looking recently at a question uh, raised by Rabbi Yosef, which he speaks at length about a situation where to do a Brit Milah on the eighth day, right, so that is is common practice, even if it falls on Shabbat, right? the, the, The mitzvah of Brit Milah overrides the Shabbat. But what if that Brit Milah is taking place in a khilani, in an irreligious context, such that a couple of hundred people are gonna drive on Shabbos to the Brit Milah. Maybe we should postpone the Brit Milah to Sunday, right? Do the Brit Milah a day later in order to prevent um, uh, all the Chilul Shabbos. Now that's not the sort of question that a rabbi a hundred years ago would have had or 200 years ago. In other words, each only bringing it up as an, as an illustration that each rabbi has to deal with the unique features of his own society. Hirsch's society was a group of people who loved the German culture, who believed that the German culture was something wonderful, and when faced with a choice, are you going to embrace the culture and reject Judaism or embrace Judaism and reject the culture, they were all assimilating and rejecting Judaism. And he was, he was he, he was teaching, this is not necessary there is an approach which blends together the best of Jewish life with the best of the cultural of German culture. And you don't need to give up anything at all. You just need to be learned and be strong. So I I, I would disagree with you that he was influenced by society. I would agree with you that he had to develop unique uh, ideas and and techniques to, to deal with a very difficult, A
0: social reality. That's what I want. Rabbi, do you have time for two more questions? One more question. Uh, Is that okay? We'll do one quickly. For as a a text here, Uh, Simon Montague asks: As Western Sephardim the Spanish and Portuguese Sephardim, to whom combining Torah with knowledge from the wider world is not a new idea, what can we learn from Rav Hirsch? I mean, this is a positive inquiry, not dismissively.
1: What can we learn from Rav Hirsch? Well, uh, I, I, that's what I've been speaking about for the last hour. And what we can learn from Rav Hirsch <laughs> is um, that the, uh, the culture in which we live has positive features. But at the same time, um, uh, these features are dangerous for us. And not to underestimate the dangers of mixing. If, if, if you go to university and your, cl- and your close friends are all atheists who make fun of anything Jewish, you will find it very difficult after a while to maintain your uh, Torah Jewish beliefs. If you're surrounded by people who live very promiscuous lives, you'll find it very difficult to exercise the self-control necessary uh, to keep the halakha. This is not, uh, and if you read here, should you understand what he was doing, he was really alerting everybody to the dangers of the culture but what he was saying was something beautiful. He was saying, yes, these are dangers. You must go in with your eyes open and know the dangers of the culture you're getting into. But at the same time, you should know that the culture has a lot to offer us. Science and culture uh, and, and aesthetics of literature, music, uh, it has a refinement on the soul. And, and, that's, and that's something that we can get, and which is good for us, and which is compatible uh, with the with, uh, with a- a- uncompromised halachic life. That's really the point.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Margaret. I believe you have a question.
1: Thank
4: you. Um, having grown up in Mokshul, which has got to be the natural follow-on from the, um, from the Frankfurt Gemeinde, um I, I could just tell all my Spadi colleagues and friends here that it is exactly as Rabbi Kimchi He said, we had a dress code. We were told after we were 12 that we had to wear hats to shul. We should learn that. The music aspect is very interesting because I believe in, in uh, Rav Hirsch's time, there was wonderful church music going on. And so there was a great posse of musicians who wrote specifically uh, Jewish music. Um, there's Bach. There, there are quite a few of them. And there's a big repertoire. And it's so that the Jew would feel at home in his sh- synagogue, as well as the Christian would feel at home in his church, La Havdil, I might say, so that they wouldn't feel compromised on, on having their Sabbath service. And that goes on in, in shul today. I know that in Broyer's shul in Washington Heights, I know in Munchshul, not so much today anymore because we were three or four Rabbonim removed from Abba But it's true, we had a wonderful cousin. And, but you know, it, there was very little singing with, it was listening to. And um, I know that um, but I was, it's very interesting, everything that Rabbi Kempke said because on Monday, we had a talk from Rabbi Vora Halevi. And she was saying exactly that, that in the, um, the Mizraḥ communities, particularly, for instance, in Egypt and in where the Rambam was and these places where the Jew was not frightened of being part of a world. Because he was confident in his own religion and therefore he could afford to be in a multicultural world. And well, the reason you
1: haven't seen that, you have a first hand testimony that the spirit of uh, Samson Rafael Hirsch's ear, gear is still alive and well in Golders Green. There you go. Yeah, well, he I mean
4: Rabbi Breuer was my uncle, so he was married right. to my grand sister. So There we I mean- go, there we go. Absolutely. Yeah, See, the auschwitz reminder that you spoke about, it wasn't only against, it wasn't only for the enclave of these Jews, it was
1: also Polish Jews weren't allowed in, Hasid, no Hasidic That was not what the Auschwitz meant. Auschwitz meant not joining together with the reform. That's what it meant. Oh, auschwitz you. wasn't, it's true, there were certain uh, ideas to, to keep it culturally uh, separate, but that's not what Auschwitz meant. Okay, now you see okay. that that's uh, this is some a selection of people's responses to this to this uh, era. But yes. I I personally find it a very fascinating uh, um, uh, period of Jewish history, which was very formative for the way we live today.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, Hakan, thank you so so much. I'm sorry about everyone else who's got their hands up and I've got comments and questions. Um, it's almost uh, it's almost midnight, I believe in. Uh, uh, Israel. Quarter to tw- so, it's
1: quarter to 12 for me yes that's true I had, i've had a long day there you but go i've enjoyed so this much, very bro. much i look forward to next wednesday
0: yes see you then thank you rav and thank, thank you all for being here take care you. bye